John Huss. Jan Hus, probably more like it. Lived from 1374 to 1415. This is an account of his being burned at the stake. It says, Arriving at the place of execution, he was asked by the empire's marshal if he would retract his views. If he would retract the gospel. Huss replied, God is my witness that the evidence against me is false. I have never thought or preached except with the one intention of winning men, if possible, from their sins. Today, I will gladly die. About 31 years old. Today, I will gladly die. The fire was lit, and as the flames engulfed him, Hus began to sing in Latin a Christian chant. Christ, thou son of the living God, have mercy on me. See, Huss, as we call him, John Huss was influenced by the writings of Wycliffe, an earlier, early reformer. He, he so wanted to know the truth of the gospel and the truth of what Wycliffe was teaching that he copied his works by hand so he could take them home and have a copy. No printing press yet. That's dedication. And he, was, he preached against indulgences. It might think, make you think of Martin Luther, who comes later. He, he preached against the extravagant lifestyle of the Pope and clergy. He said Christ alone was the head of the church. He said no Pope or council can establish doctrine contrary to the Bible. And he refused to recant of the gospel and was burned at the stake on July the 6th, 14, 15. I give you him as an example of, 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 there are many examples. I encourage you to read biographies in history where you see God granting faith, sustaining that faith, taking people all the way to the end of martyrdom, and they remain faithful. Luther could have faced this exact thing. He didn't, by God's grace. Some lived, some died, but all true Christians in that time and this loved Jesus and walked with Him. See, this is, this is unshakable faith. This is unending faith. And this is the kind of faith we see in the apostles as we read through Acts and, and others as we move forward. One of Gamaliel's disciples named Saul of Tarsus will become sort of important as we read on. But they don't, this could be them. They don't know how this is going to turn out. They're trusting God. They're being faithful to God. They're bold as lions now where they were, hiding in the upper room. All because of Christ and His resurrection. His death for their sins. They had experienced salvation. They had experienced the Gospel in Christ and they would not give it up for any reason, even if it meant their death. We've seen them go from timid, scared apostles to in Acts chapter 1 spending 40 days with Christ and being, being taught and trained more and Him showing them how He's the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament. They had actually seen Him ascend into heaven with jaws agape and the angels speaking to them saying, why are you looking in heaven? You have work to do. 
get. We saw them wait in prayer for the fulfillment of the promise that Christ would pour out His Spirit, that they would be empowered for witness. And then in Acts chapter 2, you see that very thing happen. The Spirit poured out on all the church so that the church would be witnesses to the ends of the earth of Jesus Christ. And then you see in that Acts chapter 2 that first sermon where Peter preaches and thousands are converted. And he keep moving. Beyond that, a great description of the early church in the end of chapter 2 and their generosity and their devotion to Christ and, and to prayer, to Bible study, and they're walking with Him. And then on the way to the temple, there's a lame beggar that through Peter and, and John were healed and they preached the Gospel and thousands more come to faith and the leadership's getting more and more nervous and they arrest them. But they can't deny the miracle, so they threaten them and they release them. They keep right on in that very city, in the temple, preaching the gospel, nurturing one another, loving and living for Christ. We see in Acts chapter 5, the first church discipline in the New Testament church where Ananias and Sapphira are struck down by God for lying to the Holy Spirit. And then this summary that Mike preached about the the apostles and the signs and wonders that God did to confirm the gospel through them. And it says in verse 14 of chapter 5 that more than ever multitudes, believers were added to the Lord. Healing. But the healings just support the preaching of the gospel and people are saved through hearing the gospel and not anything else. And so the high priest raises up. They're all upset. They arrest them. And as I said, they put them in jail. The angels break them out. They go right back to the temple preaching. They bring them back in. And then court is convened again. And as I look through this, a lot of these things we've talked about already as they were arrested and persecution and all of that. But, but I see something. As I was studying, I was, I was seeing again and being freshed again at the work God has done in the lives of these men. To take them from timid men to bold as a lion, standing in the very court of the highest authority in the land who could literally have their neck and basically turning it on them, preaching repentance to them, calling for their repentance, come what may. And when they're released, they just continue right on. So we'll look at this this second court and how these things quickly and then notice a couple of things about what's going on at the end of Acts chapter 5 and see that in us as in them, when God creates faith, He sustains it to the end. He uses His people for His glory. And unshakable faith is characterized by repentance and rejoicing and difficulty, especially opposition to the gospel. But look at this, the first in in verses 27 to 32, the apostles preach repentance to the court. The apostles put the court on trial. They flipped the script again. They did this last time. It says, when they brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, now they are upset. We sort of suggested that you not do this anymore. We strictly charged you Strictly in verse 28, we charged you not to teach. In this portion, they won't even say His name. In this name. We have already charged you with a crime and we we charged you and, and, and told you 
We put the law on you saying you will not teach in this name anymore. And so they cried and ran and hid and went on to another country. To... Now sometimes they do as you read through Acts. But went right back into Jerusalem. Preaching. Look at this, what they said. This is an awesome testimony of the early church. We strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. You have filled Jerusalem. I wish maybe someday somebody can come to us and say, I don't know what's going on with you people, but you have filled Swansboro. You have filled Carteret County. You've filled Onzo County with the preaching of the gospel. Pray that be a charge we're guilty of. And look at this. You intend to bring this man's blood on us. Uh huh. You intend to make us responsible for him. Uh huh. It's because you are. He said last time you killed him by the hands of, you know, the Romans. But you killed him. Like you're intended to bring his blood. You, people even said it. May his blood be upon us and our children at the instigation of the leadership, right? We strictly charged you, and listen, step back for a minute. This is a very intimidating situation. Imagine standing before the and the presence of the highest court in the land, and you have clearly violated the law. And there is a penalty for that. We charged you last time to stop. The, I mean, I'll just pause. The days are coming. Apart from revival, the days are coming when it will be illegal to preach the gospel in this country. That will test us, that will purify us, but that will bless us and God will use us and it will be for our good. Short of revival. That's where we're going. You intend to bring this man's blood upon us. And Peter and the apostles said, we're sorry. We didn't mean to do that. Maybe there's some sort of misunderstanding here. Look what they said. We must obey God rather than... I love that just torse little statement. Yeah, that's kind of what we're up to. You know why? Because we're going to obey God rather than men. We're going to obey God rather than you. And what they basically say is because you are in opposition to God. Your God. The one you claim to follow. The one whose law you say you love. Look what, look what they said. We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers. Who, is they, who are they talking about? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God of our fathers raised Jesus. That name you won't say. The God you claim to, father, to follow is the one who has done this. This is His Son and His Gospel. And we are merely serving Him. Now they don't come out and say it in so many words, but the implication is clearly there. And you are not. Stephen's going to get in trouble later for such a speech expanded. And he will pay the what we call the ultimate price of death. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed. But responsibility? For, yes. Whom you killed by hanging on a tree. Now, I'll pause for a minute. They did, in opposition to Jesus, kill Jesus. But what put him 
ultimately what put him on that tree? God did. Why? Justice. Why? Somebody had to pay for the sins of his people or they could not be reconciled and redeemed. So Christ, willingly being the mediator of the covenant, took our sins upon himself and willingly sacrificed himself. That doesn't remove the responsibility of the leadership who went to wicked means to kill him. And the only thing that was going on on that cross was not his physical suffering. It was the torment of his soul for his people, taking hell for us who by his grace would trust in him and drinking that cup dry. He could only do that because he's both God and man. And he satisfied justice for his people. That's why it's a free gift to us. Through wicked hands and through your hands, he was killed and hanged on a tree. But you didn't win. In case you think you did or think you will. God exalted him at his right hand. The position of power and authority in heaven. What did Jesus say? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Like it or not, I am king. Go tell him. That's what they're doing. This wonderful king sacrificed himself for his people. God exalted him, your God, the one you claim, to his right hand. And now he is leader and savior. He's in authority. He's the one who has blazed the trail. And he is Lord. King of kings and Lord of lords. But he's also, praise God, savior to those who will trust him. And look at this. Jesus, exalted to the right hand as leader and Savior, who gives repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Who gives repentance to His people. Who grants repentance to Jew and Gentile. We'll see it later in Cornelius in chapter 10. God grants repentance. God works repentance in our hearts through the preaching of the gospel. Jew and Gentile, one new man in Christ, the Israel of God. He's exalted to give repentance and forgiveness of sins to His people. We sang about forgiveness of sins. God be merciful to me. And we can know with utter assurance If we come to God through Jesus Christ, if we confess our sins to Him, He is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But forgiveness comes through repentance. And we know included is faith, which is not mentioned. Conversion. They're calling, He's calling the court. They're calling the court to repentance in Jesus. God's Son. Now notice the Trinity here too when he says in verse 30, the God of our fathers, right? Raised Jesus. There's Father and Son. God exalted Him to His right hand. There's Father and Son. And then he says this, and so, he says in verse 32, and we are witnesses to these things. What? The Gospel. Christ living and dying and being raised from the grave. And so is the Holy Spirit. There's the third person of the Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey Him. You don't have the Spirit. You're not obeying Him. You're not of His sheep. He even told you that. But you're not trusting in Christ. You're not following the God of your fathers. You are in opposition to the God of your fathers and you are trying to stamp out His gospel. You can't win. 
The Father has raised the Son and given the Holy Spirit to His people. And He works in them growth in grace so that they grow in joyful obedience to Him because they love and trust Him. So, they said, we have strictly charged you to not do this and they do it again there. Lovingly, but faithfully, they poke a finger in their eye. But it's a gospel finger. It's a Jesus finger. The apostles, now don't miss this and we'll talk more about this later. They are only preaching what they have witnessed and what they have experienced. What transformed them? The gospel, Jesus, living and dying for them and being raised from the grave. Seeing and witnesses to Christ and the joy nobody could take away. They know absolutely they're following the Savior. And they're going to be faithful to Him come what may. And you'll see it later in Paul. To live is Christ, die is gain. Crown my head or cut it off, I win. I am His ambassador. So they're basically proclaiming the gospel to the the council and calling them to faith and repentance. And so the council repents and come to faith in Jesus. And No, look at the second part. The apostles preach repentance in the court and now the apostles rejoice in opposition because opposition is there. And Gamaliel's wisdom, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, and you can read more on it if you want to, and there's a lot of discussion on who Thutis is and Judas is, and it really doesn't matter. Um, but Gamaliel's half right. Okay? But he says this, when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. (laughs) No repentance there, right? But a Pharisee named in the council named Gamaliel, teacher of Paul later, we'll find that out, the teacher of the law, he's held in honor by all the people. He stood up and gave orders to the men. They put them out. Let's talk a minute. Put them out. You guys are losing it. You need anger management class. You're losing it. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you're about to do with these men, for behold, the days in, before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed. Now see, this is the normal occurrence. He was killed and all his followers dispersed. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people after him. He too perished and all who followed him scattered. He's like, you know this to be true. You know that there's been some false leaders pop up. They die and their movement scatters, right? Even that, not always, we see. But but he says, so too in the present case, keep away from these men and let them alone. Kind of sounds like Pilate's wife, right? Keep away from these men and let them alone. For Now, this is the part that's not true. If this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. No, not necessarily. Mormons have seemingly flourished. Jehovah's Witnesses. A lot of movements flourished without being of God. Men love to follow other than God unless He reaches them with His grace. But He says this, but if it is of God, and it is, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found. Now he's a little more gentle than the apostle. You might even be found opposing God. 
the God you claim to love and the God you claim to follow, if you are in opposition to Jesus Christ and the gospel, you are opposing, opposing Him. And there's only one God. So His calm reasoning with them has some effect. And it says, so they took His advice. And when they called in the apostles, and the apostles don't know what's going to happen here. It says this, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So it's not that they did nothing with them, as he said, but they didn't kill them as they wanted to at this point. Anyway, they beat them, probably with the 40 lashes minus one, what Paul said he had experienced five times from the hands of the Jews. It's a pretty severe beating. They beat them and threatened them again. Do not speak any more in the name of Jesus or something worse is going to happen to you. Pretty intimidating. The highest court in the land, red-faced, leaning over probably. And they don't fear them. Because look what happens. Yeah, Gamaliel's wisdom, you've got the threats and the beating again. And now look at how they respond. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing. They lost the case. Why are they rejoicing? Because they didn't really lose the case with the highest court. Which is above these men. But look at this. They left, they've been beaten now. They're probably bleeding. They're injured. They're threatened. They're under penalty of death. And it says, they left the presence of the council rejoicing. Look, this is why. That they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. The name of Jesus. They were worthy. Come on, y'all. That sparks all in our head, right? They were rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for Jesus' sake and for the gospel's sake. Leaving the court having a hallelujah fit. And imagine, now imagine if you're in the Sanhedrin and you see them leaving and they're like, Woo, yay, ha, hallelujah. And you'd be thinking, these people are nuts. They're rejoicing not in the beating. They're rejoicing not in the trouble, not in the difficulty, not in their hardness of heart, not in their rejection of the gospel. They're rejoicing that they're counted worthy to suffer. For Jesus. Why? Well, Jesus told them. They're, they're cashing in a blessing. Jesus told them, Luke 6, 22 and 23, Blessed are you when people hate you. Wow. That's not what we shoot for, is it? Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil because you're a jerk. No. Or to be loving, passionate, faithful. They revile you and spurn your name as evil on account 
of the Son of Man. Now look what Jesus tells him to do. If you are persecuted or excluded or spurned or reviled or mistreated because of Jesus' name, He says, Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so did their fathers to the faithful prophets. And we talked about Hebrews 11 and 12 last week and that one didn't get recorded. That's why it's not on the website. But um, they went away rejoicing. Now look, in verse 42, we'll come back to that. In verse 42, and every day, every day, in the temple, right under their nose, every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Messiah, that the Christ, is Jesus. The only effect that court and that beating had on them was rejoicing and faithfulness. The leaders are trying to stamp out the fire of the gospel and every time they hit it, it just flames out from there. More sparks raise up. They went away rejoicing and preaching and God continues to save His people. God continues to build His church. God continues to use weak, fallible, needy men. But men who have been given the Gospel and have the Holy Spirit to rock the world. These are not special guys. Read the Gospels. It's not the elite of the society. It's not the religious leadership. It's not the most highest educated. These are knuckleheads that were transformed by Jesus into world changers. I can relate to that. The knucklehead part. He is merciful and gracious and compassionate. But boy, like Luther, once he latched onto the gospel, you could not get it from him. They have the gospel. They have the truth. They have the Savior, Jesus. And they will not let it go. Life is not more precious. Life is not more precious to them. And we'll see them continue to witness and some martyred and Paul come along and the gospel just keeps going and you know Acts ends without an end because the gospel just keeps going to the ends of the earth. But I want to highlight two things for you as we close that you see in this text. And the first one is repentance. They said Jesus as leader and Savior grants repentance to His people. And we talked last week in, in, in Hebrews 12 too about taking sin seriously. So just a little more expansion on that, a little more detail. But true faith, unshakable faith, is always accompanied by repentance. There's no salvation without repentance. Conversion is faith and repentance. It's not just Jesus as a ticket out of hell. It's a new heart. <laughs> It shapes a new life. Jesus grants repentance and forgiveness. So, what, and, and I quote this, I'm familiar with this, but Westminster Shorter Catechism, uh, chapter 87, not chapter, question 87, says this, and it's just a summary of what the Bible teaches. What is repentance unto life? Answer True repentance. The repentance God works in the hearts of His people is this. Repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner out of a true sense of his sin 
and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ does with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it to God with full purpose of and striving after new obedience. That's a mouthful, isn't it? It's, you know, that, but that's trying to bring out all that the Bible teaches about repentance. First of all, it's a saving grace. Augustine got into trouble when he said, God command what you will and grant what you command. Work that in us. Because we don't have it. So it has to be grace. It's a saving grace. It comes through the Gospel and the Spirit working in the heart to bring us to faith and inhabiting that heart to produce a new life. It's a saving grace whereby a sinner, those are the ones Jesus came to die and live, be raised for. Whereby a sinner... Stop. That's all of us born into the world. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All deserve condemnation. None of us deserve grace. Until you get there, the Gospel won't be sweet to you. God owes you something and it's not grace. It's condemnation. But God. Whereby a sinner out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ what is that? From the preaching of the Gospel, we understand the seriousness of our sin and that we deserve condemnation, that we deserve rejection by God. We deserve hell. But God sacrificed His Son, raised Him from the grave, that we might be forgiven of all of our sins and clothed in His righteousness. See, the mercy of God is available in Christ for those who will, in humility, turn from themselves, basically, and trust in Jesus and Jesus alone. So it's a saving grace where about a, we, we get a true sense of our sin and apprehension of the mercy of God through the preaching of the Gospel. And so the net flow, the outflow of that, Christ granting repentance, it says this, does with grief and hatred of His sin. Stop. Kids, when you get caught, is your sadness that you got caught or is that you have disobeyed and disappointed your parents? You grieve over your sin or the fact that you got caught? Now, there is some grief over that we, that the misery that sin brings and that we get caught. But it's not true repentance if there's not grief in our hearts over our sin that we have offended God and there's not hatred of our sin. True repentance includes grief and hatred. Godly sorrow, Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 7 that produces true repentance. So the Gospel works in us to make us hate sin. Why? Primarily because look what sin did to our Savior. That cross shows you how serious sin is. And that Jesus took that for us and drank that cup dry. That should produce love for Him. Therefore, hatred for what put Him there. If I don't hate sin, I don't love Him. If I don't grieve over sin, not just the fact that, you know, I want to be free from hell, oh no, well we all do, but not grief over the fact that we've offended our Father who, who loves us so. Our God who gives us life and breath and all things. Does with grief and hatred of His sin turn from it unto God. 
See, there's the turning. The turning flows out of a heart that's been changed by the gospel. Love for self is no longer primary. Love for Christ is primary. Love for sin is no longer there because it's hatred of sin now. Because of the gospel. So we turn from it. With a full purpose of and striving after new obedience. Jesus put it real plainly, and this is not a threat, and he didn't say it with a mean face. It's just, if you love me, you will obey me. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. To the extent that I don't obey him, I'm showing areas where I don't love him, where I don't trust him. Those in whom God works repentance go from loving sin to hating it, from, from, from grieving over worldly things to grieving over sin. They turn from it to God and desire to be fully free from it and purpose and strive for new obedience. And oh, praise God, He'll finish that work in us someday. Don't you wish that fight was over when you came to faith in Jesus? But it's not. Sanctification is the process of us getting the gospel deeper and deeper and deeper into our being so that we love Christ more and more and hate sin more and more so that we turn from it more and more. One day, no more sin, no more misery, no more dishonoring God. All joy and satisfaction, delighting in Him, trusting Him, Living for Him. But see, this is the kind of Jesus, of repentance Jesus grants to those He saves. And this is the kind of repentance that is evidence of true faith in Jesus. A turning from sin, a trusting Jesus, and a pressing into living for Him. A mourning over the, the, the ways that we fail in that. And, and going to Him through His Word and through prayer, seeking to be transformed more and more into His image. If your heart is still primarily into sin and the world and the ways of the world, you don't know Jesus. If you struggle with sin and hate it and want to be free from it, and if your confession is you're trusting in Christ and Christ alone, welcome to the club. But if Jesus is just an excuse for sin, you know, I... I like sinning and He likes forgiving, so that's quite a great arrangement, Michael Horton says. That's our hearts, we're in trouble. Jesus said this. This is coming straight from Christ. This is what He told the apostles to preach. In Luke 24, 46-49, He said to them, Thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. All that's in the Old Testament. He's teaching them and showing them that He's a fulfillment of it. And look at this. And that repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. There's a lot of gospel preaching that goes on these days that is devoid of talk about repentance. And it's not gospel preaching. If, it, if, that's, if Jesus just came to make your life better, that's the wrong Jesus. Jesus came to die for our sins, to be buried, to be raised from the grave in victory over our sins, and to grant to us faith and repentance, forgiveness, and new life manifests itself in growing new obedience to Him. We've seen it in the psalm that we're reading. In Psalm 119, it says, The Lord is my portion. 
I promise to keep your words. I entreat your favor with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your promise. When I think on my ways, I turn my feet to your testimonies. And I hasten and do not delay to keep your commandments. One thing you'll see over and over when you read Psalm 119 is this desire, this passion for repentance and joyful obedience to God. God, I'm I'm filled with grief over my sin. I want to live for your glory. Help me. And then the Word. The Spirit works through the Word for that growth in grace. Look at God's promise in Ezekiel. It's kind of seen as a counterpart to Jeremiah's promise of the New Covenant where the law is written on the heart. It's not in a box now. It's in the heart. Rewritten. Ezekiel puts it this way. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. Look at this. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, a responsive heart to God. Look at this. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. God not only grant, commands what He wills, but He grants what He commands to His people through the Gospel. Our love changes. Our desires change when we come to faith in Jesus. I'm not saying we don't struggle with sin and need to grow in grace. We will. You know when that process is over is when we're glorified. You know, guys, you will never sin in traffic again when you're glorified. You shouldn't now. But boy, it tests us, doesn't it? I'm just going to let the ladies off the hook this morning. We will never sin again when we're glorified. Grace trains us, though, to press into this kind of repentance. Look at what it says in Titus. Titus 2, 11-14. New Testament, right? Not just Old Testament stuff. For the grace of God has appeared. How and where? In Jesus. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, not just the Jews. Praise God. Training us. Look what grace trains us to do. Grace training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Grace, boil it down, grace trains us to repent. And our initial repentance comes when we come to faith in Christ and then the Christian life is a life of growing repentance, a life of growing faith until He comes or until we die and we're set free from sin. To live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Look, gospel motivation. This is not legalism. Who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. That's another way of saying sin or disobedience. And to purify. So He didn't just come to you know, remove the penalty. Redeem us from all of our lawlessness to pay the penalty and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. Zealous for joyful obedience to Him, to His Word. Is that you? I'm not saying you fully arrived yet, but is that your desire? True faith is a repentant faith. You might say, how do I grow in true faith? Well, God has given means of grace for you to grow. Prayer. Confession, right? We even sang that this morning. Confession of our sin. Praying for strength and power to walk in godliness. The Word. 
parallel passage to be filled with the Spirit. It's Colossians 3.16, be filled with the Word. The Spirit works through the Word. Worship. Did you know that the primary means of grace happen on the Lord's Day when we're gathered? And especially when the Word is preached, and that says nothing about the crooked stick He uses to preach it. It's His Word going forth in the midst of His people to transform them. Community. This is not a Lone Ranger effort. You need to be telling somebody about your struggles and being encouraged and praying with and if you're doing this on your own, you're doing it wrong. You'll suffer way more than you should. Do you have don't now listen, don't tell your stuff to everybody. But do you have people that are close to you that you can go to and you can confess your struggle with and receive encouragement and strength? That's why God has us live in community. And I'll give you one more because we see it in the Apostles' witness. Man, there's nothing that prunes away pride and prunes away desire to be loved and be the the hero like witness does. Nothing that promotes humility like talking to other people about Jesus, about sin, about repentance around faith. But true faith, unshakable faith, is a repentant faith. And that's what these apostles have experienced and that's what they're preaching to the leadership and that's why they hate them. That will happen sometimes. And therefore, the second thing I wanted to highlight this morning, true faith or unshakable faith rejoices in difficulty and opposition. As Americans, that is foreign thinking. Because life is good when stuff is right. And life is bad when life when there's trouble. And I'll read from Matthew the same thing I read from Luke, parallel passage from the Beatitudes, where Jesus says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets before you. So primarily to those apostles and to those disciples who were there, sending them out into the world to witness, and he said, Listen, Blessed are you when you were rejected because of me and persecuted because of me. And through them to us. I mean, do people even know that you're a follower of Christ? I mean, I'm sure your family does, and that's the hardest group to reach, and they'll probably give you the most grief over it. Do people know we're followers of Jesus? I mean, are we even getting any of this? Do people, some people just don't want to hang around with you because you know, they're not into this Jesus thing. If we're persecuted for Jesus' sake, like the apostles, we are blessed and we should rejoice and leap for joy. But just difficulty in general. Just difficulty in general. Unshakable faith rejoices in difficulty. It doesn't see it as a foreigner. Look at this in Romans 5, 1-5. And I, I promise you I'm almost done. Y'all are like, wow, this is going to be a long time. Settle in. No, I'm almost done. Romans 5, 1-5 Therefore, since we have been justified, declared righteous by God on the account of His Son, by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand in grace and we have access to grace. His throne is a throne of grace for His people. 
We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, now listen, here's where the stuff that will cross your eyes. But we rejoice in our sufferings. It's just a general term. How in the world? Why? Knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not just put us to shame because God, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit He has given us. We rejoice in our sufferings because God is sovereign and at work and He is our Father and He promises to make all things work together for our good, to make all things chisels in His hand to make us look more like Jesus. Sufferings in this world can hurt us, but they can never harm us because they are making us more like Christ so we can rejoice in them because God is on the throne, because Christ is at the right hand, granting repentance and faith and seeing to it that His mission is accomplished to the ends of the earth. Unshakable faith thrives in the midst of difficulty. False faith fails in the midst of difficulty. Unshakable faith is hard to kill. Like my mimosa tree. You ever tried to kill one of those things? Oh my word, they go everywhere. I cut that, I mean, I put it through trials and tribulations. I cut all the limbs off of it. In two months, they're all back going, ha 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 ha. And then it starts coming up over here and over there and on the other side of the house. Cindy says they're a plague. I said, mimosa trees are pretty. She said, yeah, in somebody else's yard. (laughs) They're hard to kill. And unshakable faith is impossible to kill because God is in it. He's not only the source of it, but the sustainer of it. And He's going to take you all the way through working repentance in you and growing you in grace through the difficulties that you face so you can rejoice in them. Look at this. Some of us think, I mean, we this what, really? 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 to 18. Rejoice always. Rejoice always. Comma, but yeah, period. (laughs) No commas or periods in original language. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. See the means coming into play? Give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God in Christ for you. You know, Ephesians amps it up up even more. It says give thanks for everything. But it says in Christ Jesus. Jesus. Because everything's going to be used by Him to bring me to faith and to conform me into the image of His, of Himself. So I can rejoice. The gospel is big enough. Look at some of you have too small a gospel. It's just about Sunday. It's just about going to heaven and not hell. It's not about the dailies of life. The gospel is big enough if you get the grasp of the gospel and God's grace to you in Christ so that you can walk and grow in. We, some of us have to grow in it, right? Takes us a while to get around to counting it all joy. Rejoice always though. Give thanks for everything. He's on the throne. He's at work in you and through you for His glory. When you feel it and when you don't. If you're trusting in Him. See, this gospel was the glasses the apostles wore. It's through the gospel that they saw everything. And the most precious thing to them was Jesus Christ. That's why they could say to live is Christ. Jesus was their treasure and no opposition or difficulty was going to stop them from preaching His Gospel, from fulfilling His mission that He had given to them. They had experienced true conversion. They believed Jesus' promises. And now all 
of life was about Him. By God's grace alone, they had unshakable faith in Jesus. What about you? Has God brought you to the place where you have grieved over your sin and turned to Christ in faith? Do you hate sin now and want to be free from it? Do you love Jesus and want to trust Him more? If pressed to the wall, if you were asked why you will go to heaven, will your answer be Jesus Christ and Him alone? Are you rejoicing in difficulty? Or, and I confess, none of us are glorified yet. We struggle with this. Are we grumbling like Old Testament Israel? Are we rejoicing in difficulty because we're trusting our Savior? Are you resting in His grace so that if it was you on that stake about to be burned for Jesus, would you be able to sing and place yourself in His hands? What must I do to be saved? Believe on, trust in, turn to, and rest in the Lord Jesus Christ as He is revealed in the Gospels. And you will be saved. We know they said about John Huss, we will cook his goose. We will cook this goose. You know how they said that? Because his last name means goose. You know where cooking the goose come from? John Huss. That's where that came from. And that day they, they, they cooked his outer goose. But they just ushered him right into the presence of Christ. To live as Christ and to die as gain. The apostles, most of them, 11 of 12 of them, would face the same outcome. Eventually they would be martyred. And Jesus' grace was sufficient for the occasion. But while they lived, they grew in faith. They grew in repentance. They grew in rejoicing. All because they had experienced the new birth and been granted repentance and faith in Jesus. They had unshakable faith. I'll end where I started with a quote from John Huss. He said this, I hope by God's grace that I am truly a Christian, not deviating from the faith, and that I would rather suffer the penalty of a terrible death than wish to affirm anything outside of the faith or transgress the commandments of our Lord Jesus Christ. What a gracious God. What a salvation. Trust and rest in Jesus. He will produce in you this kind of repentance. And you can walk with assurance knowing that all of your sins are forgiven. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for grace. Thank you for mercy. Thank you for the boldness and the, the perseverance we see in, in, in Acts and as we see in the apostles and your disciples. Thank you for that same Savior and that same salvation. It's ours. That we are more sinful and wicked than we ever dared imagine, but more loved and accepted than we ever dared hope in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone. Rest our souls in your grace. 
put your delight, the delight of you in our hearts so that we trust you and live for you and grieve when we fail. Not just for what it costs us, but that we have offended and brought dishonor to your name. Help us, Lord, to trust in you. And I pray for anyone in here today or anyone listening online who doesn't know you and maybe you hasn't even heard. What must I do to be saved? Turn and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. It was as simple for the tax collector as God have mercy on me, a sinner. Paul said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will be saved. Thank you for the knowledge that through simple faith, which is a gift of you to us, through simple faith in Jesus Christ, all of our sins are washed away in his sacrifice, washed away in his blood. And it's better than that. All of his righteousness is credited to our account. So that when you see us, you see your son. And you say, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Righteous. On the basis of Jesus. A child of God being transformed into the image of Jesus. Because we've been adopted into your family. You are growing us in grace and you will finish that project. And Lord, propel us out with your grace outside these doors. To tell others about Christ. And the great joy and the great grace that we have in him. So whether we know you or not, Lord, those who don't know you, bring them to faith. Those of us who know you, grow us in grace for your glory and our good. Help us to be able to to state with growing confidence that for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.